New Testament overview. And tonight we have the uh, audacious task of trying to get through the rest of Paul's epistles. We're going to be looking at the rest of the Pauline epistles. And so as we get started with that, uh, just as a reminder, we already started looking at the Pauline epistles. We uh, looked at Romans, for instance, last week, and we spent a whole session on Romans because it is such a, an important book for Christian life and Christian doctrine. We wanted to see that. The rest of the Pauline epistles really reflect segments of the book of Romans. And so we can start to see it flesh out in the various churches there. And so we are going to be looking at the rest of Paul's epistles tonight. Uh, that would be 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, and Titus and Philemon. I almost forgot one there. So that is a lot to consider. But as we consider this, I, I want you to remember that we are considering letters that are written, because that's what an epistle is. We are considering letters that are written to real people, people who experienced real temptation, real struggles, just like us. They, are, they were people who were battling sin. They were battling the, the world. They were battling the devil. And as they were doing this, they were struggling to put their faith into practice. And so there are people just like us. These letters are applicable to us. They are sufficient and they are relevant for what we are going through. And so as we consider these, I mean, we could break down the list a little bit further. We could talk about, for instance, the general epistles um, like Galatians and 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 First and Second Corinthians, uh, we could then also consider the prison epistles, as Paul wrote four of these epistles while he was in prison, and he wrote them back to back. He wrote Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, and Philippians all while he was under house arrest, and. Uh, if you look at these letters, there are some good parallels between these these letters that we could consider. Uh, so it is interesting to think, OK, he wrote these around the same time and there are parallels to these letters. We could also consider the fact that he wrote epistles specifically addressing pastors and church order. And we call these the pastoral epistles, first and second one and one and two Timothy and Titus first and second Timothy and Titus these are the pastoral epistles and so there is a further breakdown that we can have with these these are not just all addressing the same thing they are addressing various subjects for various needs within the body of Christ and so let's consider first first and second Corinthians and to do that uh, let's turn to 1 Corinthians, really all of chapter 1 from verse 18 all the way through chapter 2 deals with the wisdom of God, but let's zero in on just a few of these verses, chapter 2 verses, uh, starting in verse 12, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And that's something to, no to notice right there. In Scripture, through, through Scripture and through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives as, as, as we are reading His holy and inspired Word, we have the mind of Christ available to us. 
And so we have received this from him. Uh, this is not the spirit of the world. This is a spirit who is from God. And we uh, recognize that as believers, the things that we need to know we have received. And this is something that the saints at Corinth needed to know. This is uh, the, the, the addressees. For both of these letters, the saints who are at Corinth, sometimes as you are reading through this letter, you may be thinking, especially 1 Corinthians, you may be thinking, how in the world are these believers? But they are. They are believers. Believers can get messy sometimes. Saints can, 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 can mess things up sometimes. It's true. And we need to be corrected. Of course, Scripture is good for correction and reproof. And that's what we have here is Paul writing to address some things. Now, they had initially written to Paul, and this is what prompts Paul to write 1 Corinthians. And then uh, he will later on, uh, because he's still receiving a bad report, he will then uh, later on write them a second letter that we don't have. You say, well, we have 2 Corinthians. That's right. That's actually another letter that he wrote after what he called in 2 Corinthians 2, 4, the severe letter. He wrote a severe letter to them, and then he wrote what we have as 2 Corinthians. What did the severe letter say? Well, some of it is recorded, but we are it's left out of the canon for us. God did not see fit to inspire that and to... To, to leave that for us in, uh, in church age. So, so we just have First and Second Corinthians. Uh, this is a, a good set of letters for us as we might struggle through things. Some churches do. Um, sometimes churches get a little nervous when the pastor breaks out first or second Corinthians because they think, OK, what kind of problems are uh, do we have going on in the congregation? But we need to preach through them because we need to know what these letters say. And uh, they were both written in the same year. 56, the year 56. And so that's that's around the time that they are written. Uh, and the theme for them for first Corinthians is correction because factions and sin were plaguing the church. And you can see that as we go through first Corinthians, you can see some of the things that were going on. Uh, they had lawsuits going on. They had immorality going on in the congregation. They had people who were claiming their liberty against others. There were some who were uh, even oppressing others. Um, and, and so Paul goes through all of that. He, he gives them uh, the proper instruction on Christian order. He, he then uh, tells them how they should operate with their spiritual gifts because people as amazing as it is, they were abusing their spiritual gifts. I know you can't imagine that. I know you can't turn on like a, a television station like TBN and imagine that people would be abusing spiritual gifts. But it does happen every once in a while. Um, and so he does write to correct uh, those issues and, and so many others. Unfortunately, he didn't address all of the issues that were in the church and uh, new issues came up. And so 2 Corinthians was, ne was necessary, especially since there were these false, the teacher, false teachers who were coming up within the church and they were calling themselves apostles. In fact, they were saying, we are greater apostles than the Apostle Paul. And Paul's like, yeah, they're, oh yeah, look at these super apostles over here. Uh, of course, he's speaking, you know, uh, ironically there. Um, he doesn't really think they're super apostles, but you know, they, oh, there's so much great. Oh yeah, yeah, these super apostles over here. Isn't this something? Look at these guys, you know, kind of mocking them a little bit. So he gives a defense of his apostleship in second Corinthians. And that's important for us as we go through the letter. Uh, so, so just as an outline, first Corinthians, we have the divisions within the church, especially noted within chapters one through four. Some are of Paul, some are of, of Apollos, some say, oh, I'm the spiritual one, I'm of Christ, you know, <laughs> and so he says, no, no, you know, we need to, we need to be united in spirit. Then you have the, um, right after that, you have the disobedience that was going on in the church, uh, and so he condemns that, obviously, and then the difficulties that are in the church. In fact, these difficulties are, are many of the ones that they had written to him about asking him his advice. And so 
he gets to chapter seven and he finally starts addressing all of that. He says, well, I have a few concerns of my own as we're going through this because he had received reports of what was actually going on there. And so, and so that's what we have with first Corinthians, second Corinthians. Again, he's trying to, he's trying to defend his ministry. And so we have uh, the character of Paul there. It, Paul's explanation of his ministry, chapters one through seven. Uh, a lot of great material there, by the way. Uh, it, then we have the collection, Paul's collection for the saints, chapters eight and nine. Uh, we, we see um, a lot about Christian giving in, in that section. And then we see cre the credentials he presents, Paul's defense for his apostleship in chapters 10 through 13. And so those are the two Corinthian letters. And Paul probably <laughs> visited Corinth right after this just to follow up with, with these two letters. And in fact, in other letters, maybe there's even another one he wrote. Uh, the Lord did not preserve these for us. He only preserved first and second Corinthians. What does that mean? Does that mean if we were to be able to find somewhere buried in the sand the severe letter, quote unquote, does that mean we add it to our Bible and we put it between first and second Corinthians? Maybe we call it uh, Corinthians 1.5 or something. You know, where is that what we should do? No, because God has not preserved that for us. If we find it great, the Lord has been good to us. We can read it and it might answer some questions. But the Lord has said that first and second Corinthians are the letters for the two, for the church age for these past 2000 years. How do I know that God said that? Because these have been the letters to the churches for the last 2000 years. If it wasn't God's will, he wouldn't have allowed it. And so this, this is what God has for us. And, and this is what will be relevant to us as a church. And so that's, that's the Corinthian letters. What about Galatians now? Let's turn to Galatians. Galatians 2. And we'll go through verses 19 through 21 here. Just as a good place to start. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Well, I think the old King James says in vain, right? Christ died in vain. And so this is a, this is a key point in Galatians that, that his life, Paul's life is in Christ alone. He's died because he's been crucified with Christ, but he lives because of the spirit of Christ within him. This should be all of our attitudes. You know, anytime we face sin, no, I'm dead, I'm dead. But Christ lives in me now. You know, this is, this is the new man. And this is what he wants them to see. And he wants them to see that it's the grace of God that helps him to do this, not obedience to the law, not law keeping. Uh, if, if, if we could get redeemed through law-keeping, then Christ is dead in vain. He died needlessly. And so who are these people that he's writing to? Well, the saints at Galatia. The saints at Galatia. Uh, he is, again, writing to Christians. He says, uh, he says to the churches, in verse 2, the churches of Galatia, uh, chapter 1, verse 2, what are the Galatian churches? Well, we have the, not the Antioch that we were talking about as the mission center in the book of Acts. This is the Poseidon Antioch and Iconium and Lystra and Derby. These are the, these are all in Asia Minor and Acts chapter 13 and 14 and 16 talks about these churches. So these are the Galatian churches 
And there was error going on in these churches. When did he write the, this letter? Uh, sometime between the years 50 and 56. There is a little bit of a debate on that. Uh, but his theme there is justification by faith. Justification by faith. Because they had been believing another gospel. And so in chapter 1, verse 6, he, he says, I am amazed that you're so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for another gospel, which is not really another. But there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And so he wants them to see that they are following a path that's leading them away from the true gospel. Even as believers, we can start to go after a false gospel. That's why it's so important for us to know what the true gospel is and to be reminded of it. And so what, what is the outline? Of course, justification is the huge theme of this book. Justification by faith alone. And so he wants them to see that in chapters 1 and 2. Justification by faith is defended. And then justification by faith is explained in chapters 3 through 4. And justification by faith is then applied in chapters 5 and 6. It's important that we understand the Galatian error, the Galatian heresy. Because when we think of the word legalism, but sometimes we think of it in terms of moralism, in terms of you know, some just you know, trying to get uh, people to operate in a certain way. That's not exactly what legalism is. Legalism uh, either comes as a means of justification or as a means of maintaining justification. That's, that's the true aspect of legalism. Legalism is, to put this another way, legalism is a means by which you try to get yourself saved or means by which you try to keep yourself saved. And the Galatians were following, falling into that latter camp. They were trying to work to keep themselves saved. And so Paul warns them not to do this. Don't mix law keeping with the gospel. Don't mix law keeping with the gospel. Galatians chapter 3. Look at what he says here. Galatians 3, 1 through 3. You foolish Galatians. Wow, he calls them foolish. That's pretty harsh. Who has, who has bewitched you? He says, you're under a spell, basically. Who has bewitched you? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And there it is. They weren't thinking that they, through the works of the flesh, could get saved. They were thinking that through the works of the flesh, they could stay saved. And that is mixing law and gospel. And we, we need to recognize that error because it is such a temptation for us. That's why I go through the gospel so many times, because I want us to know it and remember it and, and, and understand that our justification is indeed by faith alone. It is only through faith. And, and we have to hold on to that because as we, as we mature in Christ, we might start to think, well, maybe there's something more I need to be doing now that I'm a Christian. I'm maybe 10 years old in the faith, 20 years old in the faith, 30 years old in the faith. Maybe I really need to cut out the shellfish. Maybe I need to uh, go ahead and get that circumcision. Maybe I need to uh, you know, engage in all these other forms of law keeping. No, you don't have to do all of that, right? It is only through Christ that we are saved, and it is only through Christ that we stay saved. Because the truth is, if it was up to you, you would lose your salvation. But it's not up to you. <laughs> it's up to Christ. Christ is the one who keeps us. His grace is what keeps us. And so this helps 
us to keep a level head about our faith, especially as we get older in the faith, we start to think we need to have these other things now. Um, maybe, uh, maybe if I were obeying more of the Bible and, and doing some of these other things, I could kick up my, my spirituality to the next not, notch. That's not the way we need to be thinking. Now, if you're not obeying the Bible, of course, that's something that you need to contend with. But it's not through, it's not through finding some secret Bible verse that you're going to increase your spirituality. Um, it just doesn't work that way, unfortunately. Uh, so, or fortunately, I guess I should say, because I'm, I'm actually glad that God works it out that way. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad that that's the way it is. And so we want to avoid the Galatian error. Uh, there's two big errors in the, in the epistles that I will sometimes refer to and that I hope that you recognize. The first is the Galatian error. The second is the Colossian error. And uh, we'll get to that in just a few minutes. But uh, we want to see these errors and we want to try to avoid them in our lives. And so let's, before we get to the book of Colossians, let's talk about Ephesians now. Ephesians, and of course, this is one of Paul's prison epistles. Ephesians, and let's turn to chapter 4. Of course, we studied Ephesians recently, so it should be relatively fresh on our minds. Ephesians 4, we'll look at verses 11 through 16 here. This is talking about Jesus, and he, Jesus, gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all maintain, or until we all attain to the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head even christ from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of its of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love note that last verse there the whole body builds itself up in love that, that's that that's interesting because what we see in the church are individual members who come together serving in their individual capacities. But as that happens, the whole church is being built up because God has so ordained the church to operate in that way. And so God uses us to build us up in love. As we have a conversation with one another, we're speaking words of edification, not words of, of condemnation, but words that build up rather than tear down. We are encouraging one another to, to live rightly, to, to, to engage in good works. We are stirring up one another to love, um, as Hebrews says. Uh, but this is exactly how God has designed the church. And, and we see here in Ephesians that Christ, the head of the church, is building his church in the way that he wants it to be built equipping it with these apostles and the prophets. You say, where do we get the apostles and prophets today? Right here, right here. This is where we get them. They were the first ones. That was the foundation. And Ephesians 2 actually makes that argument that they are the foundation. And the rest of the structure then is built on top of that. And so we have pastors and teachers and, and evangelists who continue to spread the word. The, 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 the building materials come together. The house is being constructed and, and the whole thing is being built up in the Lord. And so these are the saints at Ephesus. They need to see this. Of course, Ephesians also, uh, or Ephesus is one of those head 
churches in an area, as, as Paul would address the Ephesians, he is actually addressing other churches in that area as well. He's writing this one a little bit later, uh, the year 61. Of course, as we said, that's uh, during his imprisonment. And as we said, this is about building up the body of Christ, building up the body of Christ. What's an outline of this book? Well, a lot of the books, uh, I've mentioned, I mentioned this as we were going through Ephesians several times. A lot of Paul's books can be divided very neatly in half. This one can as well, where we have our Christian position in the first three chapters and then our Christian practice in the final three chapters. There's the doctrine section and then there's the practical section. We, 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 we start with what God has to say about our position with Christ, our position in Christ. The gospel themes there, the, the, the themes of predestination. I know people get really antsy when we say, talk about predestination and election, but Paul starts that letter right off with that. These themes of predestination, redemption in Christ, the love of God, they all lead us into the practical section, the last three chapters of the book. We have to start with understanding our position in Christ before God, before we can start talking about our position in the world with other people. We have to understand our vertical relationship or vertical relationship with God before we can understand our horizontal relationships and before we can begin to improve upon those and to to engage in those rightly. And that not only includes, bless you, that not only includes the whole church, but also couples within the church, families, parents and children, and working relationships. All of that stems from our relationship to God. <clears throat> And so does our spiritual warfare, by the way. Of course, chapter 6 has that, has that large section on spiritual warfare. That also rests on our gospel promises. If you are not sure of where you stand in Christ, you are not ready to face the devil. Now, the devil's not going to give you a chance to get ready. You, so just go ahead and get ready now. Know what your position is in Christ now. And, 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 and then you'll be able to withstand him as you see that you have that gospel armor that you can put on to engage in that fight. And so that's the book of Ephesians. All right, we're not doing too bad here. We got through Ephesians. Let's look at Philippians. Philippians now. Philippians chapter 4 is where we'll read to kick off. Paul says, I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, of both having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now that is a verse that is taken out of context a lot, a lot. Um, there's that meme that goes around uh, the person's trying to open the pickle jar. He says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And, and it's uh, the wife, she's saying, honey, don't, or she says, honey, twist the pickle jar lid. Don't twist the scripture. <laughs> yeah. uh, you sometimes will see this uh, maybe in a Christian owned gym. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You can say that, uh, but don't go putting, you know, uh, six, six things on one side, six things on the other side, thinking, okay, let's, let's squat this. I can do this. Yeah, no, no, <laughs> don't just jump right into that. Okay. Uh, that, that, that may not work out too well for you. No, this is talking about being content in your circumstances, about being, uh, about having the ability to adjust to whatever situation that you, uh, that you find yourself in. Um, 
And it's always amazing to see people like that um, who, who can just adjust to any situation. And um, I don't want to embarrass the Aragons, but I, uh, I, they are a family who, 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 who definitely model that. Uh, it's, 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 all, it's, a, it's an encouragement to me. Um, who is this written to? This is written to the saints at Philippi. The saints at Philippi, and, and again, uh, he wrote this around 62 A.D., or the year 62. And this letter is about unity or joy in Christ. Uh, and that's what we see throughout each of these chapters. Chapter one, joy and unity in suffering. In suffering? Yes, you can have joy and unity in suffering. The, the church at Philippi had some suffering. Uh, they were a poor church and they suffered, and yet they were joyful, and they were unified. Uh, Paul, Paul encourages them to continue in that way. Joy and unity in submission. Uh, joy and unity in submission. Be like Christ. And, of course, we have that great kenosis chapter there in chapter 2, uh, where Christ said, uh, it is said of Christ that he emptied himself. He did not become less than God. Don't think that when it says he emptied himself. That does not mean that he became only a human being. There is a false teacher of a very large church, um, Bethel Church, um, uh, Bill Johnson, not Bill Johnson, Bill Johnson at Grace Community Church. He's a good guy. Um, so so he, he's not the bad guy here. But Bill Johnson uh, of Bethel Church in Redding, California, he, he teaches things like that, that Jesus Christ became a man. And as a man, he was able to do miracles. Ergo, we as ordinary people can also do miracles. He did miracles to show us that we can do miracles. Wait, no, that's not right, is it? Uh, I mentioned uh, in, um, it was either Wednesday night or it was in my class this morning. I don't remember which now. Um, I mentioned that some churches engage in grave sucking. Was I talking about that Wednesday night? I must have been in my class this morning. I was talking about that. Grave sucking is where you uh, lay on the graves of, of dearly departed saints and you can absorb their holiness as as you lay on their grave or maybe you touch their tombstone and you can absorb it uh and it unlocks your potential some i always think of like some kind of anime or something like like you know like dragon ball z or something like they're increasing their 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 spiritual fighting strength by getting on these graves and they're you know somehow I, this is worldliness this is not Biblical Christianity. It is a charismatic church. I don't remember if they are Assembly of God or not, or if they're just considered non-denominational. But it is the same Bethel that uh, does the music too. Um, although their their musicians have kind of kind of split off to become their own thing. But yes, it's it's the Bethel music. Um, that was this morning. Okay, good. Okay. Um, I guess it was good, but yeah, they 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 engage in some 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 interesting activities over there. Uh, Jesus Christ, I was trying to remember how I got there. Jesus Christ did not stop becoming God. Jesus Christ was still God when He came to Earth. He just laid aside His glory. Now that glory was tempor was veiled, but it was temporarily unveiled on the Mount of Transfiguration. They got to see for just a moment who he really was. They got to see for just a moment what Isaiah saw in Isaiah 6 and what John saw in Revelation. And so uh, Jesus laid aside his glory to come to earth. He took on the form of a servant. He didn't stop becoming God. But he took on that humble form to save us. Now we as believers should have that same mind where whatever glories that we imagine ourselves to have, and a lot of times it is imagination, uh, we, we, we lay that aside for the sake of other people. We serve. We do things that maybe, so, maybe someone might say, well, in your position, that's demeaning. Well, why does that matter? It's service. It's, it's something that needs to happen, right? 
that's that's the kind of mindset that we should have. Humility. Let's put it another way: putting someone above your own interests. And that's what Paul is getting at here: counting others as more important than yourself. And so he talks about that joy in unity, joy in unity in suffering and submission and in salvation. Chapter three, he gets into that the goal of life. And then chapter four, he talks about joy and unity in sanctification and sanctification. And uh, there we have those great verses on how to, how we should think, how the, the kinds of things that that we should put our minds on uh, versus the things of the world. And so, so he, he wants us to see that. And, and look back now to chapter 1 for just a moment. And note that he, he is calling us constantly throughout this letter to rejoice. Chapter 1, verse 21. For me to live, for, for, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. He says it doesn't matter if he lives or he dies. He, he is praising God either way. He is lifting God up. Look at chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 7. He says, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted lost for the sake of Christ. He, he says the things that he may have been lifted up about, uh, and he goes into that earlier here in Philippians 3, the things that, that, that he might exalt himself over, the, the glories that he might imagine himself to have. He says, I count all of this as loss for the sake of Christ. It's like a dunghill. For the sake of Christ, he, he sees his current position as more important and he rejoices in his current position, even though he's now suffering more as a believer in Christ than he did as a Pharisee uh, who did not as an unbelieving Pharisee. Chapter four, verse four. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. That's another one that we do with the children, right? Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice, right? Something like that. Chapter 4, verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Wait a minute, does that mean even rejoicing in dark circumstances? When we're poor, when things are going wrong? Yeah, yeah, we can even rejoice in those kinds of circumstances. And so, yes, rejoice in all circumstances. And that's the book of Philippians. Smaller book. I spent a little bit longer on that one. So let's move on to Colossians now. Colossians. Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. He says, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink, or in respect to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath day. Oh, we're talking about the Sabbath day uh, right now in the Catechism. There are people who would act as our judge in regards to the Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So don't let anyone act as your judge in regard to things that are just a shadow. <laughs> Look to the substance. Look to Christ. This letter is written to the saints at Colossae. And as I mentioned earlier, this was also written in the year 61. Uh, this, he is also addressing error in this church. And so he wants them to see the all-sufficiency of Christ. This morning in our new members class, we were talking about the sufficiency of Scripture. It's important for us also to see the sufficiency of Christ. Christ is enough. Christ is enough. Because people had a false view of Christ in this church. They had a bad Christology. And because of that, they were starting to look to other things to fill the void. They were engaging in angel worship. They were engaging in Jewish mysticism. They were engaging in asceticism. What is asceticism? That's the harsh treatment of your body. Uh, think of like the desert monks who would go out and they would engage in all kinds of things like sitting out, exposing themselves to the elements, doing these things so that 
so that they would escape the defilements of the world. Uh, Paul completely debunks all of that, that, that that is necessary for a Christian to engage in. Uh, but because there were people who were engaging in that. Uh, I, I remember this one guy in uh, Jacksonville. I was teaching a Sunday school class um, years ago. Um, I don't even remember how long ago it was, but uh, he, he, he came in. He was an older gentleman, uh, and he said, listen, it's important for us to suffer so that we can draw closer to God said, really? He said, yes, yes, it, it is important. He said, and of course, this is Jacksonville, Florida. He said, sometimes during the summer, I will sit in my apartment with the air conditioning off and I, and I will just, uh, just, just sit there sweating. And I will think about how Christ suffered for me. And, and I feel closer to him when I do this. We don't have to engage in that. We don't have to whip ourselves, uh, flagellate ourselves, you know, because of our sins. We don't have to do these kinds of things to try to make ourselves uh, or draw ourselves closer to God. There's a group in the Philippines, if I'm not mistaken, which goes every Easter and they, they, they crucify themselves. And, and supposedly they, they become more spiritual because of that. There's a lot of false teaching out there, a lot of things that would seek to distract us from the true gospel. And so Paul, just as he's dealing with the Galatians, he's now dealing with the Colossians. They're seeking all these other things. And it's not even just things that they are doing, but also things that they're seeking, like angel worship and, and mysticism and all these other things. And so he points them back to the sufficiency of Christ. And he does so uh, in the first two chapters, the sufficiency of Christ. He, he tells us who Jesus is. Uh, that he that he uh, holds the universe together, and then he tells them that they are built up in Christ. And after that, he tells them they need to submit to Christ. Don't be looking to all these other things. Submit to Christ, and that's important for us. We we want to avoid all of that kind of nonsense as much as we can, as much as we can. And so that's the Colossians. And so we have the Galatian error or the Galatian heresy, and then we have the Colossian heresy. But what about the Thessalonians? The Thessalonians, we're, we're, we're making it through here. We're making it through here. The Thessalonians, First uh, Thessalonians 4, First Thessalonians 4, verses 3 through 4. Let's take a look at that. First Thessalonians 4. Verses 3 and 4. He says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Right there, that's a sermon. <laughs> this is the will of God, your sanctification. I want to know what God's will is for my life, for you to be sanctified. Yeah, but I mean, like, like, do I need to get this job? The will of God for your life is your sanctification. <laughs> yeah, but I, I, what about this car? Do I get the red one or do I get the green one? The will of God is your sanctification. That right there is a sermon. The will of God is your sanctification. That is that you abstain from sexual immorality. Oh, I wasn't asking about that. Well, you do need to be asking about that, right? You're, you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. And so this is what he's doing. He's, he's trying to encourage the Thessalonians, the saints at Thessalonica, the saints at Thessalonica, and he was writing this early on, verses 50 and 50, or verses uh, in the year 50 or 51. And he is writing to them as a new church. They are a young church. In fact, he was only with them for a few weeks before he had to move on. And then he writes to them to continue to encourage them. Uh, First Thessalonians, we could describe it as the growth of a new church because they were a new church. But it's interesting because a lot of Thessalonians that maybe you even think of the books of Thessalonians as being in times books. 
There's a lot of eschatology in this in these books. Now I want you to think about that. If the Thessalonian churches were young or was a young church, the Thessalonian church, excuse me, was a young church. What is the growth of that church involving? He taught them about Jesus. He taught them about salvation. He taught them about sanctification. He taught them about the things of God. <clears throat> but he also taught them about eschatology. He was only there for a few weeks, but he's talking to them about the rapture. He's talking to them about the second coming of Christ. He's telling them about all of it. Sometimes we shy away from those eschatology teachings because we think, oh, that's going to drive people away. There's a lot of fighting about that. There, there can be a lot of fighting about it, but that doesn't mean we need to shy away from it. This, too, is part of the word of God. And so part of a growing new church is knowing eschatology. It's knowing the end times. When he writes Second Thessalonians, he wants to comfort them and correct them. There were false teachings going around. Uh, again, yes, about eschatology, because yes, people can get eschatology wrong. There were people who were saying that, that the second coming of Christ had already happened. Um, there are people today who say the second coming of Christ has already happened. Um, but he says, I don't want you to be troubled by that. And he gives them a review of that. But the book is, uh, the, both books are about um, understanding who we are in Christ and uh, seeing eschatology in light of that. We have the thanksgiving that he gives in Thessalonians 1, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We have the vindication before the Thessalonians, his vindication. And then we have exhortation of the Thessalonians, and that's in chapters 4 and 5. In 2 Thessalonians, he encourages them because persecution is on the horizon. Uh, and so he encourages them in persecution. And then he explains the day of the Lord, chapter 2. And then the exhortations to readiness in chapter 3. Sometimes uh, it, it's good to talk about things like the day of the Lord when there are some uh, bad things happening in the life of the church. I remember hearing one preacher talk about the fact that they were having fires in the area and, and they could even see fires out the window of the church because they were coming over the mountains. And it was just one of those things where sometimes in that in, in that area, like in this area, they get a lot of fires that will that will sweep through. And he said, this is a good time to talk about eschatology. And yep, there we go. <laughs> Sometimes that's a good time to do that. And persecution, that's, that's a good time to talk about the day of the Lord and what that means and what it means to be ready. And so, uh, so that's what we have with the Thessalonian letters. Now, from there, we transition and we transition into the pastoral epistles. And so this is a little bit different where we don't have letters that are written to churches per se, although these letters do apply to churches. With the, Thess with the pastoral epistles, we now have addresses to individual pastors. If we describe some of these other letters as encouragements to the churches, to the saints of churches, in the pastoral epistles, we have encouragement to pastors which is good for me. I, I always need encouragement. Uh, I'm sure it's good for your husband. He always needs encouragement. Uh, we, we have encouragement for pastors, which obviously then applies to, to the churches. So let's look at 2 Timothy for just a moment. 2 Timothy. We've talked about 2 Timothy 3.16 lots of times. 2 Timothy 3.16 But let's go just a couple verses before that to verse 14, 2 Timothy 3, 14. You, however, talking to Timothy, you, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. 
He wants Timothy to continue in that word, which is inspired, which is good, which is profitable for teaching, for correction, for reproof, so that he would be uh, equipped, adequate for every good work. Continue in the things you have learned and convinced, been convinced of. The audience here is Timothy. He is writing to Timothy in both of these letters, and he writes them with a little bit of a span in between. The year 63 for 1st Timothy, the year 67 for 2nd Timothy. And what is he writing about? Well, again, these are pastoral epistles. The first one he's writing uh, about, in the first one he's writing about uh, shepherding. We could even call it a shepherd's manual. For a sometimes timid pastor, Timid Timothy, sometimes he would shrink back or be tempted to anyway, and so Paul wants to encourage him. He wants them to step up, and he gives them this shepherd's manual so that he would know. Of course, we have so much good truth in here. We were just talking about deacons a couple of weeks ago, right here from 1 Timothy. We have the qualifications for deacons. We have qualifications for elders right here. We have a lot of good instruction in... 1 Timothy, for pastoring a church. In 2 Timothy, though, we have what is Paul's last recorded letter to the churches. And so it's a little bit of a different feel. It is still encouragement to Timothy, but it's encouragement to carry on the ministry in light of the fact that Paul probably won't be there anymore. Now that, that's that's got to be a tough situation for for Timothy, he could always rely on Paul. Paul's been arrested again. Paul looks like it looks like he's going to get executed now. Timothy is starting to feel the weight of persecution in his area. He may be tempted to just throw in the towel. No, carry on the ministry. Carry on the ministry. And so, 1 Timothy, he says, uh, he, for, for an outline, we have um, the personal address to Timothy in chapters 1 through 3. And then we have um, for Timothy to the church, the pastoral section in verses 4, or chapters 4 through 6. And then in 2 Timothy, we have instructions for spiritual combat in, in chapters 1 through 3. And then we have the commission to spiritual combat in chapter four. <clears throat> and so there's his encouragement to carry on. You know, he, he wants him, even though he is his timid son. I think I even wrote a sermon title by that, uh, carry on my timid son or something like that, because he, he sees him as his son in the Lord. Um, and he wants him to carry on that ministry. And he wants him to, to be encouraged that he can continue, even though he won't be there anymore. It's odd to talk about that, to talk about the ending of Paul's ministry, and then to have still more Pauline letters. But that's what we have. Uh, it, I guess, uh, as, as they were divvying up the, the letters here and, 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 and putting together our Bible canon, um, I guess they didn't want to break up First and Second Timothy with, say, Titus, for instance. But Titus also is a pastoral epistle, and so it is a, it is a good book to have in this section here. Titus also deals with the uh, deals with the pastoral matters that are important to the church. Titus chapter 2 Verses 11 through 13, and you can turn there. Uh, I'll just read what we have on the screen. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. I want you to see that, that, great, that the grace of God can help us by instructing us. Sometimes we only think of grace as something that saves us, but it also instructs us to be able to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. Paul wanted Timothy to see this, and Paul wanted Timothy to teach this to the church 
because he wanted a church full of sound people. But he knew Titus was the man to do it. He set Titus there. He left Titus there to set the remaining things in order, like the appointment of elders. In verse 5 there, he says, I, I, I left you to... To, to set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Crete is where he is. That's the island. And there are uh, several churches there that need elders. And so he wants him to appoint elders. He's almost acting in an, in an apostolic role. And this would have been in the year 66. And he wants him to build up churches that are sound and that have sound people in them. And so that's what he has there. Titus had some remaining things to set in order. As I said, uh, and, and when he set these things in order, they would be a sound church. Uh, he wants him to know this. Uh, chapter one, leadership. Chapter two, the congregation. And chapter three, the lifestyle of the believer. And so there, there it is. Titus is a very small book. Uh, it's like the like first and second Timothy light almost. It, it it gives us a little bit of a of a of a preview of what we should be looking for in our churches. And that brings us to. The last book of the Pauline epistles, the last book of the Pauline epistles, which is Philemon. And this is a book that does not get preached often. And I think it's because a lot of people are afraid to address the topic of slavery that is so prominent in this book. But it is important for us to see that in light of this book. Philemon is only one chapter. So if we look at verses 15 and 16 there, uh, Philemon uh, was a saint who owned a house uh, and owned some slaves. And one of his slaves by the name of Onesimus runs away and uh just happens to run into Paul in the middle of Rome. <laughs> just as he's running away from his master, he just runs into Paul, who knows Philemon. <laughs> and uh, Onesimus spends time with Paul, and then Paul, Paul is able to convince him of the gospel. Onesimus becomes a convert. Onesimus serves Paul faithfully, but then decides, I need to go back to Philemon and set things right. And so Paul writes this letter. For perhaps he was, for this reason, separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother. And so he's encouraging him to see him in a different light. And so the audience here is, again, an audience of one, Philemon. And Paul wrote this in the year 61. And um, the theme, there could be a lot of different themes we could look at here, from bondage to brotherhood in Christ, um, usefulness, a slave to a saint, human forgiveness, Christian diplomacy, all these things are, are, are true of this, of this book. What's the an outline of this book? Well, we have praise for Philemon in chapters 1 through 7. Plea to Philemon in, in chapters 8 through 17. And then a pledge to Philemon. Did I say chapters? Verses. Verses. I don't know why I'm saying chapters. It's verses. I was saying verses earlier. Now I'm saying chapters finally, and it's in the wrong section. Verses 1 through 7 is praise, verses 8 through 17 is plea, and verses 18 through 25 is the pledge. Of course, I could have some fun and ask you guys to turn to Philemon 3 or 4 and just see what happens, you know, and just, just enjoy the chaos that reigns. Uh, but this is a good letter. It does help us to see uh, how, how uh, Paul dealt with sticky issues like this. And... Um, Paul did did have a lot to write about with slavery. A lot of those words were twisted in our history here in the United States. But Paul um, 
Paul does encourage Philemon to receive him back as a brother. And church history, the, the tradition anyway of the church, is that not only did Philemon accept Onesimus back, but Onesimus became an elder in the church in Philemon's home and, and uh, actually became the bishop of the church and, and, and continued to grow in his stature. Uh, so, so it's incredible to see just, just how much of a growth uh, he went through. And so that, that's it. And, and, and we are learning about, uh, we're learning about Christian doctrine here. We're learning about Christian truth here. We're learning about Christians here. <laughs> the life of Christians. People like us, people like us, people who have struggles, people who are going through things just like us. And I hope that you'll see that these books are relevant to you. And that was quite a bit of uh, that was quite a bit of books to go through. So next time, I think we'll slow down just a little bit. We'll just focus on one book, but it's Hebrews. So that may take us a little bit to get through. Romans is heavy on doctrine. Hebrews is heavy, heavy on doctrine. So that'll take us a minute to get through, but I'm looking forward to it. I, I really like the book of Hebrews, and I hope that...